0: through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. What we're going to be uh, looking at today, the passage is actually f- rather easy to see what Paul is saying, but it's really hard to understand how to how to pull this off. A secret about circumstances. Uh, when I was... Uh, Uh, about eight or nine, which was in 1903. No, it was 1965, and my friend Doug and I uh, would watch cartoons together, and our favorite cartoon was Johnny Quest. Um, uh, Johnny was a son of a scientist and uh, traveled around the world and got involved in all sorts of adventures. Um, Now, one of the commercials that they had on Johnny Quest was for a new tennis shoe. And they were made by B.F. Goodrich. Yes, the tire manufacturers. That makes kind of sense, I guess. Uh, and the name of the shoe was P.F. Flyers. And on the commercials, uh, they promised that the P.F. Flyers would make you run faster and jump higher uh, because they had a magic wedge in the heel. And they would show a cutout of the magic wedge as the kid jumped over a bush or a dog or an adult, um, and my, my friend and I, Doug, wanted those PF Flyers in the worst possible way um, because our life consisted of wanting to run faster and jump higher mostly. So my friend Doug called me up one day and he said, I got I them. Got uh, you also got a magic decoder ring with them as well from Johnny Quest. But he said, I got him, and I said, come on over. And he came up to my house with his PF Flyers, and we ooed and awed over him and decided to put them to the test. And so we raced, and we had a circular driveway at my house. It was about 30 or 40 yards all the way around, and we raced around the, um, the circle, him and his PF Flyers, and me and my brogans, or whatever I was wearing. And I beat him by a good 10 yards. And both of us sat on the porch, t- terribly dejected uh, that I had won. Uh, and we um, we wondered if the magic wedge was somehow not there, and considered getting a kitchen knife and trying to find out. Uh, we were both dejected, and the lesson there was: it's not the shoes. Sorry, Michael Jordan. It's not the shoes. It's what you put in the shoes. It's the foot and the leg and the heart that you put into shoes. That's how you run faster and jump higher. It's not something you put onto yourself that makes a difference. It's what's from the inside that makes the difference. That was probably the most important life lesson of my boyhood that I did not learn. Uh, from there, I went on to looking for another magic wedge to give me the edge in life, something that I could buy or manufacture or put on that would make life work for me. But that's not what the Scripture is saying. Now, before we get into the passage proper, they use the word circumstances. And the the English word circumstances comes from two root words. There it is, circum plus stances not rocket science. Circum is the the root that we get the word uh, circumference from or circumnavigate. It literally means around. And stance more or less means where you are, where you're standing. So your circums are what's around where you're standing. Pretty, pretty obvious. Now... Um, You guys are in various kinds of circumstances today. Everybody here are in your circumstances. have to do with where you're sitting, um, what your finances are, what your job is, what your background is. It also is your relationships and your family tree. Uh, My nose, for example, is part of my circumstances. Thank you, Dad. Um, uh, We are surrounded by circumstances. But what you may not know is that you're made of circumstances. If you could put that graphic up there, the one with the body graphic. There we are. Um, That's what you're made of. Um, Those elements make up uh, 96%, if I did my math right, of who you are. The other, uh, the other 4% is either snips and snails and puppy dog tails. Or sugar and spice, so. um, But that's what you're made of. Now, Genesis 2-7 basically says the same thing. I'll read that to you. This is the creation account. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That is, God in the creation account took what was around him. The dust of the earth. We're made out of earth or dust or dirt or elements. We're made, that's what we're made of. Plus, the thing that makes the difference is the breath of life. There's the raw materials and there's the literal inspiriting of God into us. You're made of circumstances plus the Spirit of God. So, what did God do with circumstances? God scooped up what was around him, and it said it formed those circumstances with the breath of life into a living being. Formed has the idea of like a potter uh, creating and molding and then blowing literally into the face or the nostrils of you and I, the breath of life. Now, this is a precursor to what we're going to read in the passage. What did God do with circumstances? It's the same thing that we are to do with circumstances. God blew himself and his grace and his life into the dust of the earth, and we're we're to do that with the dust of our circumstances as well. Now, I get it. Our dust is different relative to one another and relative to other people. Some of you have gold dust relative to some of us, And some of us have dust bunnies or coal dust uh, relative to other people. But the passage is going to tell us that it's not circumstances that define us. It's not the quality of the dust of our circumstances that define us. What defines us as human beings is that God is giving us the ability, because we're made in the image of God, to blow life into whatever circumstances we have. That's what makes you a living being. That's what gives you meaning in life. Not the circumstances, but what you put into them. So another way of saying that is, for today, do you focus in your life, do you focus on changing the circums that you can't stand, or do you focus on changing your stance towards your circums? Big difference. And this is really, really worth thinking about. Changing your stance towards your circums, did I say that right? Changing your stance towards your circums is like a superpower. Uh, I think uh, Sid used a quote by Viktor Frankl last week. It's not on the slides. Um, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, not a believer, but was a um, psychotherapist. Uh, in the family line of family tree of Freud, I suppose you would say, and he was also Jewish, and uh, Frankl spent uh, six months to a year in the German concentration camps and lost most of his family to the concentration camps, and he came out later and became a a psychotherapist. If you can imagine going to a, a counselor who just got out of Auschwitz and saying something like, My husband will not pick up his underwear. <laughs> but Frankel, um, a gracious man, um, listened to this quote about the way he described uh, human freedom and what we can do with our circumstances. He says, We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And what he's saying there is regardless of what the Nazis did to him, he didn't have to choose to be a Nazi back to them. You can choose your response to your circumstances. Well let's look at the passage. Philippians 4:10 through 13. Uh, four verses uh, I got, um, I'm going to break them into four sections, and we're going to walk through this um, pretty quickly, and then we're going to talk about what the secret is that he's talking about here. Paul says in verse 10, "I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And what Paul is referencing here is his circumstance. Paul is under house arrest, probably in Rome. Uh, He was arrested for preaching the gospel, accusations from the Jews. He was um, put before Festus and King Agrippa, if you remember that section, in, in Acts and he appeals to Caesar, and he's at, in Rome, and he's under house arrest. It's not good circumstances. Now, what he's thanking them for here is that the Philippians have evidently taken up an offering and sent it to Paul to help meet his needs while he's under house arrest. You're responsible for your own um, uh, needs. Uh, sometimes you got a food allowance, but you're responsible for your own needs in the house arrest. And he's saying, thank you for doing that. And then in verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in what, he says this thing here, for whatever situation, let me start over, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul is saying, thank you for what you've done for me, but that's not really what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about my need. I want to talk about what I've learned from Christ. I've learned and in whatever situation I am to be content. There's something bigger than the situation. Now, if Paul had come to me for counseling and said this, I would have thought he was in denial. I would have talked to him about, well, listen, you're not really seeing your life situation. You need to grieve. You need to uh, lament. You need to understand that. Um, but I don't think Paul is in denial. And uh, through my counseling career, I've had the privilege of meeting some people who are able to say this. They're pretty astonishing and rare breed. When I read this passage and I thought back, I, I thought, I we'll call her Julie. Um, she was a woman that I met probably within the first 10 years of, of counseling. And uh, Julie uh, was as country, she's more country than my ancestors, Uh, and they're pretty country. She grew up in Biscoe, North Carolina. You ever been to Biscoe, North Carolina? Come on. Um, Biscoe, she had uh, a thick, thick southern accent, and she had uh, thick, thick glasses. I always felt like I was looking at a cat when she was talking to me. And I thought, you know, Julie was, um, when I first heard her speak, I thought she was kind of simplistic. But over the months, I found out that Julie is a deep, deep well. She she was married to a man who was probably an alcoholic, but was pretty verbally and emotionally abusive. Uh, She had two children that were young, and uh, she was... um, Trapped in a lot of ways in this situation financially and and socially, and as we talked, um, I got a, I got a little view of of Julie's heart that was um, um, lamenting. Um, carefully lamenting for her kids and for herself. She was no fool, and she knew what was happening to her and the toxicity of the relationship. But she loved this man for his sake. Now, ultimately, uh, Julie had grounds for divorce, and she divorced her husband. And she was relieved by being out of that situation. But one of the last times that I saw her, uh, she told me this. She told me the story that you know, on, you, you, in North Carolina, you have a year of separation before the divorce can be final. And then, when the divorce is final, often it's a formality. The judge just uh, the, at the hearing, the judge just signs the order, and it's done. You don't even have to go. But Julie wanted to go, and so she drove to the courthouse and went to the um, went to the hearing and wept through the whole thing, and then got out, walked about 20 minutes back to her car, weeping the entire time. And when I asked her what she was weeping about, she was weeping for relief for herself, but also weeping that her husband was lost and was still in his toxic self, um, It was uh, one of the more deeper displays of somebody who was hurting for herself, but that wasn't her main focus or her total focus. She was hurting and weeping for her husband. So let's take Paul seriously here, that there's some way in which we can truly engage and truly see our circumstances, wherever they are, high or low, and find a way of being okay with them, um, being satisfied or content in them. Paul goes on in verse 12, and he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and And need. So, in this verse, pretty easy to understand too, he's being a little more specific about what these circumstances are. They're low and high, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, these are part of Paul's story. Uh, He's not talking about these from a distance. I'm going to read just a few lines from 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about what he suffered for the gospel. And he lists a number of things here. And, and these are no small things. They're quickly read, but they're no small things. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and, danger, and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold. And, and he goes on. This is not the whole list. So Paul was talking about, when he talked about any and every circumstance He wasn't talking from a suburban um, fire pit. Uh, He was talking about a life and death situation. In any and every, he said, I have learned the secret of facing a stance towards my circumstances. And then he goes on in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think the best way to read that is he's saying I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying it's not just in my own strength. Somehow I'm drawing something from Jesus Christ, the dead and risen Savior. Now this verse is probably the most profound and most mystical verse of any of the ones we read. It's easy to say, and we say it all the time in Christian circles, don't rely on your own strength, rely on God, rely on Him. But what does that actually mean? Uh, how, How is it that we draw strength from an invisible being, an invisible supernatural being? How does something spiritual pass between God and myself? How does that happen? It's not an uncommon picture in the Bible. Uh, i 'll mention three or four others uh, where there 's a conduit of grace or love from God to us and John fifteen where Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and you are the branches that 's the metaphor there. If you abide in me and I in you, you bear fruit, so something comes from God through Jesus to us. I am the bread there 's another way in which uh, and that we do that when we do communion um, There's something that passes to us. In John 4, Jesus said, uh, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to an eternal life. Even the passage we read from Genesis, the breath of life, is something passing from God to us that gives us strength. You picture some kind of invisible intravenous line that comes from God to us and gives us strength. Well, what is that intravenous line, since God is not seen? What is that? Trust is the invisible line. It's the conduit. Uh, Faith is another word that we use. Now, this also feels kind of immaterial and hard to grasp, but you rely on trust, and it gives you strength every day. And let me give you a few examples. These are are earthly examples, but they're examples. When you drive home today, you're going to trust that the other drivers are going to stay in their lane and obey red lights. And that gives you, because you trust it and you rely on it, you're comfortable or content to get in the car and drive home. The same thing's true when you ask for forgiveness. If you've ever had that experience of, you felt, um, you felt guilt, you felt separated from someone, and you um, go to them and you apologize and they forgive you. Well, nothing tangible passes between you and they, but something tangible happens inside of you. There's, if you believe them, if you trust them, and if they trust you, something happens in the relationship that you can physically feel. The, the tension drains away Maybe slowly, the tension drains away, but you feel a connection and a relaxation and a restoration that happens. Trust is that way. So what's the conduit between us and God? It's trusting him that he loves us and this strengthens us. And We're going to talk about what it's opposed to in just a moment. So let's ask the reverse question. Sometimes I think that's helpful um, when we're reading Scripture. Is it possible, think about this, is it possible to be discontent in any in every circumstance? It's a little easier to imagine, isn't it? Um, there's, a, there's a way that you can choose it. So I got a friend His He and his wife paid off their mortgage this year. Hard to imagine for some of you, isn't it? Uh, They paid off their mortgage. Uh, And um, it was something that he looked, you you know what that's like, you look forward to it. I remember when I got my mortgage, we went to the lawyer's office, the first mortgage. Went to the lawyer's office, very nice, very professional man. Uh, smiling, and he showed me all the forms I have to sign. And I was, as I was signing the mortgage, he asked me to, to put my foot up over on his desk. But he was a professional, so I, I put it on the desk, and I was signing it. And I felt a little iron shackle go on my ankle. And there was a, a chain about that long, and then about a 40-pound steel ball. And he smiled, and he said, Congratulations on your owning your first home. And 140 years later, you'll own it, right? So my friend, that's a, great, that's a great circumstance when you pay off that mortgage, isn't it? It's something you look forward to every month for that 30 years or however many it is. And he said he, his son heard that they had uh, paid off their mortgage and he said, Dad, that's awesome. And the, and the father's response was, can you think of a discontent response? Just think of one in your mind. His father said, yeah, we still got to pay insurance and taxes, though. So it's not really, I mean, we still got a lot going on. And he heard himself say this, and he said, you know, I took an awesome thing and a chance to share with my son this awesome occurrence that I hope he'll have someday, and I made a discontent thing out of it. You know what this is like. Somebody compliments you, and you push it away, right? Right? Something good happens, and you wait for it to start raining, right? So my question is this. If it's possible and intuitive for us to choose discontentment in any and every circumstance, is it therefore possible to choose contentment in any and every circumstance? And if so, how does that happen? Uh, It'd be kind of nice to enjoy when good things happen, and it would be kind of nice to find a way to be okay even when bad things happen. So how do you choose to be discontent? My answer would be you give in to fear. You give in to fear. And how do you choose contentment? You give in to trust. Trust versus fear. And that's the secret is to, The secret is to change your chance, stance, not your circums, and you change your stance from fear-based to trust-based, very different ways of living. Put those two quotes up there um, from Donald Miller. and uh, Here's what Donald Miller says. Fear is a manipulative emotion that can trick us into living a boring life. And what he means by that, I think, is when we give in to fear, we restrict ourselves. We don't take chances. We don't take chances to, um, to learn from a mistake. We don't take chances to enjoy a success. It tricks us into a boring life. Mike Cooley says it a, a stronger way. Living in fear is just another way of dying before your time. So how do you live? Do you live fear-based or trust-based, fearfully trying to suck life from the world rather than breathing life into the world? Fear-based versus trust-based. Let me give you some examples of uh, living fear-based. And what I did was I just went to the internet, typed in fear-based living, And there were several popped up, and they all had a similar list on them. We could probably do better if we had an hour and sit down to do it more specific to you. But let me read off of a few ways, signs that you're living fear based. Um, uh, And then I'm going to dive into just one of them. Uh, You strive for perfection, you have to have things exactly right. Number two, you settle for less than your dreams. Number three, you say yes when you mean no. Number four, you say no when you mean yes out of fear. Out of fear, number five, you numb yourself with food, alcohol, technology, or excessive busyness. You know, during this COVID year when there's been lots of fear and lots of stress, I think I've heard the word bourbon in my counseling office more times in this last year than all my whole career. Um... You numb yourself because of fear. Number six, you procrastinate. Number seven, you struggle with decisions. Number eight, you're a control freak. Number nine, you muzzle yourself. And number 10, I think, was you get sick. So these are are all signs. I think they're helpful signs that you live in fear. And we are an insecure lot. We're made for heaven. We're made for Eden. And we're not there. And that bothers us. We're mortal and we long for heaven. This bothers us. And so we, we live in fear. So you do things. You set up your life such that you live uh, given into fear. So sometimes you say yes when you may no because you're afraid of disappointing the other person, being judged, looking at as not nice. Um, claiming, um, admitting that you can't do something. There's lots of reasons for saying yes when you mean no. One of my counseling professors told this story. He was invited to speak at a conference, and so he wrote him, and he hated to turn him down, but he he had to, he had a conflict, and he wrote him a very nice letter uh, telling him no. And on the day of the conference, they called him up and said, where are you? And he said, well, I wrote you. And it turns out he had written a letter so nice they thought he was saying yes. <laughs> and then they wondered where he was on the day of the conference. You're afraid of disappointing someone, so you overpromise. Maybe this cost your family, or maybe you're run thin. Uh, saying yes when you may know out of fear is a sure recipe for resentment. Now, turn that around. What if. You believe you're going to be okay. God loves you. If you say no, if you disappoint someone, if you make someone mad, you're going to be okay because you're secure in Christ and your destiny is set. So you can say what you mean. What would that be like? Um, What if you could say yes and no rightly? Who would benefit? Well, the answer is everybody would benefit. The people that you say no to wouldn't get a resentful person there doing it for them instead of a happy person. The people that you said yes to would know that you mean it. And you, you'd be better off. It's a a cleaner way to live if you live by trust than by fear. The trust-based stance. Trust-based stance. We're made in the image of God. Yes, we're made out of dust of the circumstances. We're also made by the very breath of God who put himself into us. He shaped meaning out of dust. We're meaningful to him. We too, therefore, can shape meaning by breathing his love into our surrounding dust. The, if we trust that he loves us, we give that love to somewhere, somewhere else. Put that um, Sharon Adler quote up. In every experience, we get to choose either love, call call it trust, or fear as a response. Your character is formed by the percentages of those choices, which then forms your life. Who do you want to be? You want to be the person that's driven by... um, you got to make life on, work on your own? you got to find that action, that, uh, that magic wedge to make it work? Or do you want to be the person that takes uh, sustenance from God, your strength from Him, and you can say yes and no and up and down. You can uh, learn or grow or succeed or fail because of Him. Now I've got an application for you, and then we'll pray together. Uh, here's the application and uh, if you don't If you haven't tuned in yet, try to tune in for this. Think of a person in your life that you struggle with. They make you nervous, they irritate you. You've hurt them and you don't know what to do about that. Uh, You you argue with them, you can't agree. Uh, You feel judged by them. Think of somebody like that. I'll give you half an hour or so to come up. It's always somebody, isn't there, that we're uh, having a little trouble with. Now, I want you to think, if I believed, if I could believe that God loves me, what would I, how would I want to respond to that person? Simple question. If I believed it, how would I respond? I'm not asking you to commit to doing this. Just think it. It's a sneaky way of easing you up to the commitment, I know, but what would I do? and lock in your answer. Now, for extra credit, you can actually do that thing, but the assignment is this. When you think about doing that thing, I'm gonna go talk to them, I'm gonna uh, confess what I did to them, I'm gonna forgive them, I'm gonna ask them if I can listen to them because I don't think I did. i want to ask them, whatever it is. When you think about doing that, can you feel a fear associated with that response, okay? And if you can, name that fear for me internally. Now the homework is see if that fear shows up a lot of different places this week, okay? Just uh, do, do the diligence to know if that Notice when that fear creeps in and how much it might drive your life and what it might be to live somehow differently. Amen? Let me pray a prayer that I wrote for myself uh, in regards to my preparation for this sermon. But if you can, you pray with me and you pray as if it's for you, okay? So let's pray. And worship team, this is the end. So. <clears throat> Father, as I listen to my own sermon, I recognize much fear-based living. I look at circumstances and see danger and threat. I fear other people's opinions. I fear difficult or intimate conversations. I resort to my own strength to make life work out. I manufacture or buy magic wedges that falsely promise a faster and a higher life. I suck life from circumstances rather than breathe your life into them. I want to trust that you died in order to reconnect me to yourself. You breathe your last so that I could once again breathe that first breath. Now alive, now loved, I want to scoop up the dust of my circumstances and shape your image, your beauty, order, and love into my surroundings. If my efforts, bear living fruit? Well, I know I'm yours, and I can live with that. And if my efforts are clumsy or fail, I am still yours, and I can live with that too. In any and every circumstance, I am yours. Jesus, you've given me a second wind that lifts me above my circumstances. Strengthen me as I breathe your spirit back into the world around me. Amen. Amen.